Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Pray with me, please. Father, we are so thankful to be gathered in your name, in the truth of Jesus our Lord, in the reality of shared life in him. Father, it is a great privilege and it is a high calling for us to be Christians in this world, for us to truthfully and faithfully testify to your new creation by truly being, not just in what we say, but in how we think in the way in which we even view the world around us, being in all things the first fruits of your renewal in Jesus. Father, may we truly be a people who proclaim that gospel, the good news of the kingdom, the kingdom of new creation in the Messiah, who proclaim Jesus' lordship in that sort of a way, I pray that you would meet us as we continue our worship and as we re-engage this marvelous epistle, that you were pleased to hide the authorship of, but to let its glorious contents be preserved for all the generations. And I pray that we would be profited and enriched by its marvelous presentation, exaltation of Jesus our Lord. Attend to every heart that is here. Meet us according to our need. Meet us according to our weakness and infirmity. Meet us, Father, in the sense of freeing us from the things that distract us, that preoccupy us. And may we simply by your spirit, be present in the moment, to be fed, to be encouraged, to be nourished, to be true worshipers, basking in your glory that is in the face of Jesus our Lord. And so we commit this time to you and we pray, Father, that you will be pleased in it, that the thoughts and meditations of our heart would be according to the truth as it is in Jesus our Lord. It's in his name and for his sake that we ask. Amen. Well, we're in a section in Hebrews in which the writer's uh, kind of general, larger intent is to demonstrate uh, the superiority, the greatness, the glory of this thing that he calls the new covenant. And its association with Jesus' priesthood and its ministration 
And as we've seen, this was especially important to the Jewish readers because of the challenges that they were facing. They had known covenant relationship with God. They had known what it was to be his people as children of Abraham. They had known uh, what it was to walk with him in a faithful way. And now everything had been turned upside down, as it were, in Jesus and what had come in him. And in many ways, the pressures they were facing would have pushed them to return, at least to some extent, to the Judaism that they had left. Judaism was at that time an accepted religion among the Romans. They, they recognized these weird Jews as having their own faith and their own ideas, and they allowed them to do their own thing as long as they stayed out of the way. So returning to Judaism wouldn't have simply re-endeared them to their own countrymen. It would have taken the heat off of them in terms of uh, Roman uh, pressures that were increasingly being brought to bear. Nobody was quite sure what to make of this new Christian sect, these followers of Jesus the Messiah. And so the writer is, is pushing them to see that, in fact, what has come in Jesus means that there is no Judaism to return to. Not because anything has been done away in the sense of abrogated, but in the sense that all of Israel's history has reached its climax and its fulfillment in relation to the person and the work of Jesus himself. There is nothing to go back to because everything has been taken up and transformed in the Messiah. And what has come in him now is an entirely new covenantal relationship with God. A new covenant that has set the former one aside. And because, again, his thesis is that covenant is founded in priesthood. Remember, he said the law was founded on the Levitical priesthood. The way in which he chose to show the superiority of this covenant was to show the superiority of Jesus' priesthood. Because the correlation between covenant and priesthood means that, at least in essential ways, the ways in which Jesus' priesthood transcends and is, and is superior to the Levitical counterpart is the way in which the covenant that is associated with that priesthood also is superior and we've seen that he does this first by um, kind of giving a summary snapshot or overview of the Levitical priestly system. And then he will turn to compare and contrast that with the priesthood and priestly ministration associated with Jesus himself. And that through that way, then he, he will uh, kind of um, come to his conclusion in this section saying, here indeed is the greatness, here is the superiority of this covenant. So the last time we looked at the first piece of this examination, this brief examination of the Israelite Levitical priestly system by looking at the sanctuary itself, the physical structure, its furnishings, the symbolism of those things, how they functioned in, in terms of mediating the covenant, God's relationship with Israel. Today, what I want to do then is look at the second piece of that, which is the priestly work associated with that sanctuary. 
So verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9 deal with the sanctuary itself. 6 through 10 deal with the ministration that took place there. And that's what I would like to do today is to consider verses 6 through 10. Then beginning in 11, he takes this and, and begins to now contrast it with Jesus' priestly ministration. So read with me then, just to hold this together, verses 1 through 10 of, of Hebrews 9. He says, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, the inner sanctum. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second space, the Holy of Holies is the idea, only the high priest enters, and then once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabernacle, the idea is the first tent, is really how it reads is still standing, which itself is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation or renewal. So I want to consider then, again, the old covenant ministration today, in two main parts, the ministration of the priesthood and then the significance of that ministration. So verses 6 and 7, where he gives in general terms the ministration associated with the uh, um, Israelite tabernacle or sanctuary, and then in 8 through 10, the significance of that. The significance of that. Well, the pattern that he followed in talking about the sanctuary was outer place, then inner place, outer room, then inner room. And he follows that same pattern in discussing the ministration. He deals with the ministration in the outer room and then the ministration in the inner room. So he moves from, in a sense, the more general to the more specific, the more narrow. So the first part then is the ministration that took place in the holy place, the outer room. And that was a daily ministration. It had all sorts of different facets and aspects to it. If you go and you read um, Exodus 25 through 30, if you look in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, you, you look through the book of Leviticus, you see this priestly ministration. It involved offerings. It involved uh, various sacrifices. It involved uh, mediated worship. It involved maintenance of the furnishings, the implements, the lampstand, the, the uh, altar of incense, the maintenance of the bread of the presence. Those were all part of the daily ministration. You had a morning offering, you had an evening offering every day. And on the Sabbath, you had additional offerings. 
those things all occurred, some of which involved the high priest, some of which involved the more general priesthood. Remember, all the priests were descendants of Aaron, but Aaron was the one who first held the high priesthood. And so there was always a high priest together with courses of normal priests who carried out the daily ministrations. So that was the, and and he he deals with this just in terms of, of calling it the ritual service. That's all he basically says. And he's writing to Jews who had an understanding of what those things were. The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the Ritual service is really the idea. It's NES is divine worship, but that's the idea. The ordained priestly rituals, some of which were daily, some of which were morning, some of which were evening, some of which were weekly. But that's all he says about that. Then he moves more narrowly to the Holy of Holies. He says into the second, only the high priest, and then once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So the daily ministration, which also involved the high priest, moves him to a more narrow focus on the high priest. And in particular, what he's talking about here is the ministration of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He doesn't say that, but that's what he's talking about. And you know that because he says this was the priest's entrance into that inner space once a year. That's Yom Kippur. The reason for mentioning that, the first obvious reason, is that that was the only priestly ministration involving that inner room. The high priest was involved in other arenas of ministration, but in terms of the inner room... That was the only work, the only priestly work involving that room. It was really the climax of the priestly ministration regarding Israel. It only involved the high priest. It was the only time that the inner room was involved, but it brought Israel's priestly ministration to its high point in a climactic way. It represented the proximal, the intimate encounter between Israel's preeminent priest and the God of Israel. If the covenant established a relationship between Israel and God, this was the high point of the enacting or the acting out of that relationship. It was the closest that Israel came to her God. Israel represented in the designated high priest. Remember, the Holy of Holies was the place where Yahweh was said to be enthroned. Present in the Shekinah, the glory cloud, the luminescent manifestation of God's presence between the wings of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. That was the actual encounter, the closest real substantial encounter between Israel and her God in the person of the high priest. So it was the high point of Israel's, not only the priestly ministration, but Israel's relationship with God. It was the high point of her covenant life. 
And obviously where he's going with this is to ultimately compare and contrast this with Jesus' ministration. And it's appropriate that he would point to this for a couple of reasons. If Jesus' priesthood and priestly ministration are indeed superior to the Levitical priesthood administration, well, that priesthood administration had its own preeminence in Aaron himself. If the Levitical priesthood is the issue and Jesus is superior to that priesthood, well, Aaron, in a sense, is the epitomizing priest and his ministration is the epitomizing ministration. Therefore, the superiority of Jesus must be ultimately in relation to Aaron and his ministration. But also the issue of Yom Kippur is important because that was a time of ministration that preeminently distinguished the high priest, Aaron first, but then the later high priest. Like I said, the high priests were involved in lots of different things in the the priestly ministration. But what distinguished the high priest uniquely was Yom Kippur. He was the only priest who was involved in that particular ministration. So it set him out. It distinguished him more than anything else. He alone was granted that entrance into Yahweh's presence. And just as every priest, in a sense, in his own way, in his own sphere, mediated the relationship between God and Israel, that's the sense in which the covenant was founded on priesthood. The high priest did so, as I say, uniquely and superlatively. Not only did he alone enter the very place, the space that Yahweh inhabited, where Yahweh had his throne room, so to speak, but he did so to make atonement, not just for individual infractions, not just for particular issues, but for the whole nation, for the whole priesthood, for the whole covenant entity, which included the sanctuary itself, its furnishings, that annual ritual was essentially dealing with the corruption of the whole covenant structure and all of its dimensions and aspects. So it was a profound, all-encompassing work. Those help us to see why he points to that. And now he's going to, when we move on next time, he's going to be, in a sense, projecting Jesus' own priesthood through that lens. Those various qualities and dimensions. So the, the, the issue of Yom Kippur is what he has in mind here. And if you go back and read Leviticus 16, that's the, the most thorough Uh, explication of Yom Kippur and how it functioned. It was an elaborate, multifaceted ritual. But the writer focuses on this issue of blood, the blood offering. The high priest's encounter with Yahweh was mediated by blood. And he doesn't go into all the details, but again, you can read how that played out. But you had Aaron first. There was a bull that was selected, and that bull was sacrificed, and the blood of the bull was what he first took into the Holy of Holies on behalf of himself 
and on behalf of his priestly family, the priesthood. And then they had two goats that were selected. One was, then they were distinguished. One was set apart for Yahweh. One was set apart for the people. And the one that was for Yahweh was sacrificed. And the blood of that goat then was taken in as the means by which the offering was made for the people, for the nation, for all of the things pertaining to the covenant. And then the one that was selected for the people stood outside and faced the people, was positioned to face the people. And that was the one that was the Azazel, the scapegoat. And the high priest would then lay his hand on that goat and basically confess all of the violation of Israel in that year Onto the and confess and in a sense transfer or impart that violation onto the head of the goat. And then an appointed individual led that goat out of the camp into the wilderness, into an uninhabited place to carry the violation of Israel from the camp. And those two things together, those goats form, functioned in parallel to speak to this idea of how Yahweh deals with the violation of his covenant people. And the main issue in Yom Kippur was not personal sins. You know, like a person might go to a priest and say, well, I yelled at my wife or I stole a candy bar or I did this. It wasn't that sort of a thing. This was the corporate ownership of the violation of the covenant and its effect on the tabernacle, its effect on the whole covenant structure. This wasn't about personal infractions. This was about the nation's infidelity to Yahweh and the covenant relationship. So this blood offering then pertained to the matter of atonement, but he says specifically to sins or violations committed in ignorance is the way that the NES reads this. Again, he doesn't explain all of this because his readers would have understand it, understood it. But the law of Moses distinguished violation or, you know, you, you typically see these three things, sin, transgression, iniquity. Sin means simply missing the target or a straying aside, a lack of integrity or authenticity, it's not about particular violations per se. It's a principle of missing, of straying. And it's grounded in this thing called iniquity, which is the bent of the heart, the crookedness of the heart. And it manifests itself often in this thing called transgression. Stepping aside from the obligations of the covenant. Then it becomes more specific. So you have sin, iniquity, and transgression tied up uh, together in this thing called violation of the covenant. But that violation, the law treated under two classes. What he here calls sins committed in ignorance refer to violations associated with human weakness, human imperfection. 
But there was a second class of violation that, that in Hebrews referred to as, as sins of the high hand. Sins of the thrust out hand. Those are sins or violations that are grounded in rebellion. They have an intentionality to them. And the point is, and and I won't take the time to read it, but if you go and you read in Numbers 5, I think beginning around 22, you can see the distinction between these two classes. And the point is, is that God made a provision for the unintentional sin. And, And it doesn't mean only things that you didn't think about. But there are things that we can even be, in a certain sense, give ourselves to in our weakness, in our frailty, in our imperfection. But the high-handedness were things that were, in a sense, the spurning of Yahweh, the spurning of the covenant, the unrepentant, willful, high-handed rebellion. And the provision for that was that such ones are cut off from the people. You're removed from the covenant community. There was no atonement for that because it represented the casting aside of Yahweh and the covenant. So Yom Kippur pertained to the nation's violation, but again, in the context of a recognition that this is a people who fall short. But to the extent that there was a high-handedness, there wasn't any atonement provided. And that principle, again, importantly, applies to both corporate and individual violations. The classification of sin was both corporate and individual. It underscored, again, and this this is important, particularly with Yom Kippur, it underscored the communal or corporate nature of Israel's life with God. Ultimately, in Israel's life with God, in the economy of the covenant relationship, there was ultimately no such thing as private sin in Israel. No Israelite would have recognized the contemporary ethic that we have today of you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. That's very much our libertarian ethic. You could do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. No Israelite would have recognized that. In fact, that ethic as noble as it sounds and seems to our ears, is actually a reflection, in a sense gives tangible expression to our fallenness. The delusion of independence. What the fall did was establish a fundamental alienation that allows us to view ourselves as individuals such that we think at least in certain realms, in certain regards, there's that which pertains to me that doesn't pertain to anybody else. That's a delusion that is associated with our fallenness. Israel was collectively Yahweh's elect son. Collectively. Israel is my son. 
my only begotten son. Let my son go that he would serve me in the wilderness. Israel was collectively God's elect son, and the covenant treated them that way. I don't know if you've noticed that, but the covenant treated them that way in a myriad of ways. You see that if you go and you read Numbers 5. When one sins intentionally, the congregation is brought in to own that or to address it, to either take ownership of it or to be exempted from it directly. But you see throughout Leviticus, you see throughout the Deuteronomic law that when someone violated the covenant, the whole congregation took ownership of it. And in many cases, there was actually a punishment that came upon the whole nation or a just retribution on God's part. An easy one to note uh, is Joshua 7 and the sin at uh, Ai with Achan, right? Achan took some of the things under the ban, consecrated to God, and hid him in his tent. And what happened? The nation was routed at Ai, and hundreds of fighters, hundreds of Israelite soldiers died. And the whole nation was stopped in its tracks from advancing according to God's uh, promise that they would take the land. You see it with David. David's personal private sin with Bathsheba ultimately is the undoing of the whole kingdom. There was no such thing as private personal behavior sins issues in Israel's existence. And it doesn't mean that there was never any, that God never dealt with anybody as an individual, but he wanted them to think in terms of the community. Where there was a violation, the community stoned him. And that corporate dynamic, as I've already said, was preeminently evident in Yom Kippur. The high priest first went before God and dealt with himself and his own family, the priesthood, in terms of bringing blood before the Lord, but then he also did so on behalf of the whole nation. And not just the people, but the tabernacle, the veil, the ark, the altar of incense, the brazen altar. All of that had to be atoned for. There needed to be atoning purifying, reconsecrating work that was done on behalf of even the non-living, non-human tabernacle. You say, why would atonement have to be made for the tabernacle? It wasn't alive. It's not human. It doesn't sin. Because God wanted them to understand that this is his place and he dwells in their midst. And the people's corruption and the people's uncleanness extended to everything they interacted with. Even the priests themselves consecrated to God. Aaron at the top of that pecking order, his plaque, holy to the Lord. Aaron's presence in the Holy of Holies was itself defiling. Remember in Haggai, go and ask the priest for a verdict. If you, if you put clean meat in an unclean garment... 
does the garment become clean or does the meat become defiled? And the answer is, it always goes from defilement to cleanness. The clean never cleans the defiled. The defiled always defiles the clean. And God says, so it is with you, so it is with everything you do, everything you touch, everything you're a part of. So Yom Kippur taught the people there is corporate uncleanness, there is corporate guilt, there is corporate violation, and it's not just about you as human beings, but everything that you interact with is defiled because of you. And that should take our minds even to be thinking about what is God doing with this at that time? Where was this going? What was he trying to get them to see? And ultimately, one thing that we should be able to see in that is that God's restorative work wouldn't just be dealing with individual human beings uh, to get them to go to heaven. It was going to be the renewing of a whole creation under the curse. An exhaustive purging and exhaustive atonement and exhaustive restoration and exhaustive renewal. The people's corruption extended to everything. No layman went into the tabernacle, but it was defiled. No priest other than the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, and yet it was defiled. Everything associated with the covenant So what's then the significance of this ministration? The writer says, in this, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the first tent yet stands. The writer's concern here is not with the rules that God made for Yom Kippur, or the fact that it was God's rules, his ordinance, but the purpose for it. What was it to teach the sons of Israel? What were they to take from this thing called Yom Kippur? And more broadly, the whole priestly ministration. Well, he says it really amounted to the Holy Spirit's witness. This was the Spirit's witness to them of the enduring alienation that existed between Yahweh and his covenant people. Despite the mediatorial work and the mediatorial system of the priesthood that God had put in place. And in fact, what he says is that the mere fact of the Levitical system testified of this failure. Not only did the Levitical system not solve the problem or address the failure, its very existence testified of it. How so? He says, the Spirit was testifying to this, that as long as the first tent, and by that he's not just talking about the tabernacle that Moses was giving the instructions for, but the subsequent sanctuaries, the two temples. As long as the earthly first tent, the prototypical tent, continued and existed, that in which the priests ministered the way into the holy place. It's really the holies, the place where God is present. The the entrance into God's presence has not yet been disclosed. I don't know if it strikes you, but I I would think it would have really struck these readers. It it struck me thinking about this, that it's a kind of remarkable irony 
that he's saying the Holy Spirit was testifying that the only way that there could be an entrance into God's holy space is when the holy space doesn't exist anymore. How does that work? As long as the holy space, the place where God dwells, exists, there is no access to him. And he's saying that even the most faithful ministration by Israel's priests could not solve that problem. It couldn't achieve what that priesthood was appointed to address, but by God's design. He says this tabernacle, this first tent, this sanctuary as you have known it, is a symbol for the present time. Symbol for the present time. The entire Levitical system, as the covenant that was based on it, was ordained by Yahweh to serve a preparatory and prophetic role in his purposes. The tabernacle, and by extension, everything associated with it was a parable, is what he says. It was a parable. That's the idea of a symbol. A parable for the present time. What time? The time that has now been inaugurated in the Messiah. It was a parable for the present time. Evident in the fact and attested in the fact that gifts and offerings associated with it could never achieve that which they pointed towards or that which they pertain to, which is what? Dealing with defiled consciences. And that's what he's going to say down the road. The ultimate issue is dealing with inner defilement, dealing with the violated conscience. These were things that could not be touched by that preparatory time. This is the sense in which he says what seems to be maybe absurd on the surface, that the dwelling place has to go away for men to come into the dwelling place. The issue isn't the elimination of the sanctuary, but its fulfillment. The first tent being replaced by the ultimate heavenly reality that it was both a model of and also prefigured. Remember, the writers already said that the instructions to Moses that were implemented jot and tittle in this temple, this tabernacle, this tent that he built, that was given to him by God on the mountain as modeling a reality that lay behind it. When you make a model... You're making a copy of something that already exists, right? That's the whole idea of a model. If it's, if it's an original, it's not a model. So what was built on the earth, what the, the Israelite sanctuary, was a model of a reality that lay behind it. A reality that God would ultimately bring into time and space. And therefore, the model was also a prefiguration, it was also prophetic. It was a symbol for the present time. It was a parable for the present time. Do you get that? We talked about that before. But it's an important principle that he's making. 
The same is true of the priesthood. It also was a model that represented a heavenly reality, ultimately to be manifested in an ultimate way in the earth. So the way into God's presence, the way that he intended for all people, and the writer is going to say that, not just the high priest. He's emphasized the high priest. But he says, we have a new and living way through the veil that is Christ's body, right? This way into God's presence, which is what the holies represents, the way that he intended for all people pertains to the ultimate everlasting sanctuary. Whether or not Israel's sanctuary in Jerusalem was still standing at this time is irrelevant. God had already passed his verdict on it as having served its purpose in the salvation history when the veil was ripped into, right? And it's only a matter of time if it's still standing before it's going away. And so this way into God's presence, because it pertains to the ultimate sanctuary, that's the sense in which it couldn't be disclosed. And it couldn't be opened up to men until the first tent had gone away. Not by elimination, but by fulfillment. Because the way pertains to the ultimate sanctuary that that one modeled. Therefore, it has to yield to the ultimate sanctuary before that way can be shown and accessed. That's what the writer is saying. And as I said, as it was with the sanctuary itself, so it was with the ministration. It was an enacted parable. The Levitical priesthood was the foundation of the law of Moses, and both served as a pedagogue. They both served that pedagogical role. They served the cause of full sonship. They served the cause of God's covenant people becoming true sons of Abraham. A royal priesthood. We've talked about all of these things, but we have to keep them in our head. The sanctuary and its priesthood served the covenant. The covenant was ultimately about Israel becoming son, servant, disciple, witness. Israel fulfilling its Abrahamic identity and calling as a regal priesthood consisting of true image children. And that awaited the coming of the true seed of Abraham. That's Galatians 3. That's Paul's point, right? The promise to Abraham and his seed was ultimately his promise to the one seed in whom Israel becomes Israel, in whom Israel is embodied, the one in whom human beings become truly human, priests and kings to our God. Chris read a little bit from Revelation 5 earlier, and that's, that's where that goes. You have taken, purchased for yourself with the blood of the Messiah, men from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, and made them to be kings and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. The priests and their work were a parable depicting an ultimate reality that they couldn't achieve. Cleansing, restoration, the true communion that were the things that they were addressing. 
all of that was a divinely devised shadow, what he calls fleshly ordinances. Not fleshly in the sense that they're sinful or bad or wicked. They were ordained by God. They are fleshly ordinances in the sense that they are established and function in the context of non-renewal. And they only touch so far as the flesh, which is what he's going to say. They, they serve to the washing, external washing, external purification. They can't reach to the inner man. That's the sense in which they're fleshly, fleshly ordinances. Imposed by God, not wrongfully, but imposed by God pedagogically with a view to a new order. That's what this Reformation idea is about. It's not Reformation in the way we think of the 16th century or 17th century. It's not polishing up the apple. This is about a new order of things in view of a renewal that amounts to a new order of things. Fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the new order when every shadow will yield to the substance. So I just want to end today as I thought about, you know, how do I want to kind of pull this together in a sense? I mean, we're we're just beginning this process. But some things that stuck out to me, uh, and, and I've kind of titled this conclusion, glimpses into the new covenant relationship. What he's dealing with here is the way in which Israel's life and relationship with God and with one another was ordered. All of these things that he's summarizing here speak to Israel's covenant life, vertically, horizontally, right? And in that way, if if this was in fact a parable for the present time, If what was embodied in Israel's covenant life was a parable for the present time, then we should be able to take something from those things and understand how they stand in the context of our covenant life as those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, right? Does that make sense? So I wanted to just pull out two pieces of this. The first is more the horizontal dimension of this, which again, as I've highlighted, the Sinai covenant established Israel's corporate identity as the Abrahamic people. God didn't pick and choose this person, that person, this person, that person. He called a people in Abraham. Israel was collectively God's elect son. And as I said, in Israel's life, covenant life with God as the people of God, there was no such thing as private sin, personal choices, personal behaviors that don't implicate other people. No libertarian ethic as we understand it. And this is a radical thing in our culture. It's a radical thing in the church. Who are you to tell me? That's my business. Personal actions reflected on the whole community. All Israel would suffer because of one or a few. 
and likewise all would be blessed. The community was obligated to deal with the individual. There were individual people and individual failures and individual things, but even those things were understood and framed and mediated within the the understanding of the collective. Each individual Israelite's relationship with God and personal responsibility under the covenant were framed in that collective way. God ordered Israel's life that way, not because it just sounded good or let's give it a shot or it was arbitrary or that's just the way it was back then. Uh, This is a new time, new people, new place. But because that accorded with and attested to the truth. God devised that covenant relationship and its order and its structure and the way Israel was to think about itself. He ordered that as a testimony to what is true. Israel represented the prototypical new man. The whole creation was exiled with the fall, right? And God promised that he would bring it all back. And Israel represented the prototype of that. The calling out of a people. Not just to deliver them from their slavery in Egypt, but to bring them to himself, to become his people. Israel was, in a sense, to be the new Adam, the beginning of this work of ending exile and regathering. The fall had shattered and scattered and alienated and fragmented everything. And in Israel, there was to be a bringing back. Israel was the prototypical new man, man restored to God. I will be your God, you will be my people. This is at the heart of the the promise of the new covenant, right? Not by name, not by covenant calling, not by, you know, election in Abraham in that sense, but in truth, you will be my people, I will be your God. So their existence as a community testified to the destiny that God ordained for his human creature. It wasn't arbitrary or irrelevant. Their existence as an organism, a community, testified to God's design for his human creature. It testified to the truth of what it is to be human. Contra our natural fallen conception of ourselves and humanness in general. See, we've taken this thing called Christianity and turned it into a religion of personal rectification. Like all religion deals with the individual. Getting right with God, dotting the I's, crossing the T's as an individual, ultimately going off to heaven where I'll have my own place and sit on the front porch and I can fish every day or ski every day or do whatever it is that I like to do. My own personal private nirvana. What God was showing Israel is that this is what it really, this is what it is to be a human being. This is what it is to be image children. This is what man is, what man was destined for. That's the first piece in terms of how did Israel's covenant life 
look and project forward into what God was ultimately going to bring. And the second piece of this is the more vertical piece that the writer deals with, which is this issue of access to God tied to the priesthood and specifically to the high priest. Access to God, ultimately, the writer said, what the Spirit was testifying to, access to God amounts to the eradication of the first tent, or I shouldn't say amounts to, is grounded in the eradication of the first tent. If it's true that open access to God is grounded in that, the eradication of sanctuary as it was known throughout Israel's history, beginning with the tabernacle, then Solomon's temple, then the second temple. If the elimination of that is the ground of open access to God, that showed even then that God had a different idea in mind when he predicted and promised a final dwelling place. Throughout the prophets, God was promising the renewal of his dwelling place, right? But the writer of Hebrews says that until that first kind of sanctuary is gone, there can be no access to God, means that God was already making known in a limited way, perhaps, but nonetheless making known that ultimately this new dwelling place would be of a different sort. A different kind. It was hinted at in Israel's history. My mind went back to the psalmist who says, O God who inhabits the praises of his people. The Psalms say more than once that Yahweh inhabits his sanctuary. He dwells between the, the wings of the cherubim. But he's also said to inhabit the praises of his people. And Isaiah promised that in the messianic day that the mountain of the house of the Lord would be the chief of the mountains. And all of the world would stream to Mount Zion, to God's house, to commune with him there. And then only a few chapters later, he presents the root and stem of Jesse as the one to whom all the nations stream the one who stands as a banner to gather the, ch- the sons of Israel and all the nations of the earth. It was a key aspect of Jesus' kingdom instruction. We saw that through the Gospel of John. John is focused on this temple sanctuary idea. From Jesus saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. To the woman of Samaria that says, you're a Jew, give me the answer to this question. You Jews say that we encounter God in Jerusalem. Our, our forefathers, our Samaritan forefathers said it's here at the altar in Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when not in Jerusalem or on this mountain, but in spirit and in truth. I know when Messiah comes, he'll make these things clear to us. I who speak to you am he. We saw that in the upper room discourse, right? In my father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. Then he says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will receive you to myself, right? I will send 
the comforter, the spirit. I will come to you. And my father and I will make our place with you. And in that day, you will know that I am in him. And you are in me. And even his prayer, this high priestly prayer, Father, cause them to be one as you and I are one. I and you, you and me. Right? John makes much of this. Jesus emphasized to his disciples and to the world that yes, God is restoring his dwelling place and there will be access for men, but it's not going to look like what you thought it was going to be. And that was central to the apostolic gospel. We talked a little, not about this specifically, but in, in the Sunday school hour, just about this challenge of forming a community in the early church. And at the heart of the apostolic gospel was this determination, this purpose of God now being realized through the Spirit to form a new man in the Messiah. Ephesians 2, right? You who are far off, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has torn down the wall of division between you, making one new man in Christ. Those who are far, those who are near. Building us together to become the dwelling of God in the Spirit. This was at the heart of the apostolic gospel that was proclaimed. It was what the church was dealing with in in the Jew-Gentile questions, Acts 15. We talked about the whole justification by faith issues centered in this thing of Jew and Gentile. How do they become truly one people? Not tiered, not segmented. So as we put these two things together, the, the God ordaining or, or through the covenant and the mediation, the whole old covenant structure, teaching Israel that this is a corporate covenant relationship and how it is that it relates to access to God in his dwelling place and what would ultimately come. These things viewed even in their historical context show us, I think, implicitly what the New Testament shows explicitly. Human renewal in Jesus is a corporate phenomenon by which Yahweh obtains his new dwelling place. And I'm not saying that we're not individually saved, but I am saying what Peter says. Having come to the living stone, you as living stones are built into a spiritual house. In that way, you offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Again, this is throughout John's gospel, what Jesus was promising, what he's telling his disciples the night before he dies in the upper room. He's interpreting for them the meaning of his death coming the next day, and he paints it in terms of the forming of a new human organism, doesn't he? You see it in Paul's interaction with the Corinthians, his metaphor of the body. One suffers, they all suffer. One is blessed, they're all blessed. There is no hierarchy. There's no greater, there's no lesser. Each member is equally important. The health and well-being of the body depends on the whole, properly ordered, properly configured, properly functioning. Human renewal in Jesus is a corporate phenomenon by which Yahweh obtains his new dwelling place. 
So here's my point, saints. The extent to which we misunderstand that, or even worse, the extent to which we misappropriate it, or ignore it, or despise it, to that extent, our lives in the new covenant are actually disobedient and even perhaps fraudulent. Remember, Yom Kippur dealt with the corporate violation of the nation. And we think of of our relationship with God in purely personal terms. Have I dealt with my sin? Have I been forgiven of my sin? Am I pursuing a holy life? And I'm not saying all of that's totally irrelevant. But as I said earlier, the individual Israelite thought of his relationship with God, his status within the covenant, his personal responsibility to God and to the covenant in terms of the corporate significance. And Yom Kippur dealt with that. That was the marrow of the violation of Israel. The extent to which we misunderstand or misappropriate this reality that I've been discussing is the extent to which our lives in Christ, our lives in the new covenant, are disobedient and perhaps even fraudulent. So just a couple things to think about, and with this I'm done. There are many more things, but I just have a couple things that I can throw out there. Okay, well, what does that look like in in particular or in practice? Think about the the contemporary church's understanding of the gospel, how radically we've individualized it. I say it all the time to the point I feel like a broken record, but we've turned the gospel into a message of personal salvation. And we tell people, even if you were the only person on the planet, Jesus would have still died for you. It's a misrepresentation. Now, maybe in some abstract sense that's true, but it misses the point and it leads people down a false path. God's intent was not to save a bunch of individuals, but to form a new human community. As I said before, even with Israel, his desire was not to have a people that would bow their knee to his Torah, but to have a family of image children. Zion was stripped of her children. They were harlotress, but he promises in the renewal he will have children drawn from all the families of the earth. That's his goal. What does all of this say about uh, the church's contemporary view of the gospel of personal salvation and how we understand the personal Christian life and personal sanctification, personal destiny in heaven? For the most part, Christians live as if it really is irrelevant whether there's even any other Christians out there because it's about my relationship with God. And other people might be icing on the cake and it might, might be nice to you know, see other Christians once in a while or whatever, go to church on Sunday once in a while or whatever, but essentially it's about me and God. That's what this thing called the Christian faith and religion is all about. What does this say about the way we understand obedience? Do we understand obedience in a corporate context? Do we understand that our unfaithfulness implicates the whole body? Do we understand that our laziness, our irresponsibility, our lack of effort to grow is depriving the body? 
We even turn spiritual gifts into individual things. I have the gift of prophecy. Well, I have the gift of teaching. Well, I, I have the gift of this or that. You know, who has the gift of cleaning the toilet? Well, nobody. That's not my gift, right? The gifts are spiritual graces, empowerments by the Spirit for the service of the faith of the other. They're not about us. We take a spiritual gift test to see what I get to do in the church. And people say, well, I can't use my gifts here because you don't have this program or that program. And I'm a Sunday school teacher, so I got to teach Sunday school. All you need to use your gifts is to be connected, vitally connected with other believers and care about them and desire to see them grow up in Christ. That's all the gifts do. They're not tied to a program. They're not tied to, you know, the parking ministry or the latte ministry or whatever we want to say. How do we understand obedience? How do we understand our obligation of personal obedience through the lens of corporate responsibility? How do we understand the notions of holiness and unity? I've talked about this before. They're not separate things. It's not trust and obey. It's not holiness has to do with my personal life with God. Unity is about me getting along with other Christians. They're two sides of the same coin. Because holiness is our possession by God, our being taken up in his life, set apart to him in Christ by the Spirit. Holiness is our consecration. Fundamentally, it's a state of being, not how we act. It's the status of our being taken up in the life of God in Christ by the Spirit. And that ipso facto joins us to every person who is so joined to Christ. Unity is just the authentic manifestation of the reality of holiness. If we don't understand unity in the light of members of one another, I and you, you and me, the 1 Corinthians 12 Dynamic, the unity, as Paul says, one faith, one spirit, one Lord, one Christ. If we don't understand unity in that way, if it's around a confession or around a denomination or around, you know, an activity or whatever it happens to be, anything under the sun, it's not unity. Unity is simply the way in which the body testifies to its holiness. And on the other side, there is no holiness where there isn't that kind of unity. Holiness is not something I do on my own. If I think I pursue holiness by somehow mortifying my personal sin, that's not what holiness is in the first instance. There can be no holiness except in vital union with the body. That's the point. Even in a more simple sense, and this is my last example, which is the most trivial of them, but it still says a lot, I think, with where the church is. What about the the common preoccupation in our culture, in our day, with the Jerusalem temple? What does that say about how we understand God's intent and design and realization in the Messiah? Something as simple as that. I can't wait till they get the temple built. What would John the Apostle say to that? These are just a few ways in which saints, we've got to step back and say, wait a minute. If what God was representing and symbolizing, if what was a parable for the present time, if that's how we're to understand Israel's life 
under the covenant, we got to step back and think about now that these things have become yea and amen in the Messiah, are we understanding them? Are we living them out? I pray that we'll do business with this. The church has always struggled with these things. And we're not dealing with the Jew-Gentile thing in the same way the first century did. But we're just as autonomous, we're just as self-seeking, we're just as individually minded in the way that we go about life and think about what this thing of life in Christ is. God will have a people for himself. Father, I pray that you would be faithful with us in this. It doesn't mean that we don't have our individual jobs, our individual families, our individual responsibilities, our individual homes. We don't have to be people who have no private property or share the same toothbrush or whatever we think this might happen to mean. But we have to be a people who conceive of ourselves conceive of our identity, the truth of who we are, who understand and perceive and live out the reality of who we are in the context of the whole. When all things are fully summed up in you, in the Messiah, there will be no such thing as a human being who can define himself except in the context of the whole. In that day, the truth of me will be in the truth of the body, just as the truth of the body is in the truth of me. And Father, what a glorious thing when your people will at last truly be a symbiotic organism. And I pray that we would, as the song says that we sang, that that we would work and we would labor in view of the day when true unity The church as an organism will be manifest without flaw, without failure, when we will truly be one as Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Then the church will testify of the truth to the extent that it understands and lives that that out. It testifies of the truth in the world. Without that, there is no gospel May we take these things seriously. May we strive to be faithful with them, growing up in all things into Christ who is the head and laboring in that task with one another, together growing up in all things. We ask these things, Father, seeking your grace, seeking your forgiveness, seeking the renewal of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.